0: Hey there, good morning, and welcome to The Story Church. Uh, You are our online campus this morning. If you're tuning in from your home or wherever the Lord finds you today, I'm so glad you're part of The Story by virtue of this technology. This is a little bit of a different week for us uh, because the Houston Marathon passes by... Montrose Boulevard, right here in the Museum District. And so we're not able to open up live in the morning um, today, uh, this Sunday. Now, we're going to be live in person over at our Timber Grove campus in the Heights a little later uh, this morning. Uh, Actually, 10 o'clock this morning is the start time for that. If you want to scoot over there, if it's not 10 yet, wherever you are right now, scoot over there and see us live. Or you can join us back here in the Museum District, where we will gather at 6 p.m. tonight for a very special uh, worship night. So if we're not acquainted yet, my name is Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here of The Story Church. Our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. Plain and simple, that's it. We're not here to make big, a big church out of this deal. It's not about church membership. It's not about butts and seats or dollars in the plate. It's about you and Jesus, and we just want you to become better acquainted with him and make your choice about him. That's what we've always been about. At the Story Church, and we are just in the first third now of a, the longest series of messages that we've ever done. This is part seven of a 22 part series on the gospel according to Luke. The series is called A Physician and the Facts. Luke was a medical doctor in the first century who wrote the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, both of those together, account for like 28% of, uh, of the New Testament, and so uh, he's a significant voice and someone that I think speaks directly to the heart of the skeptic, which is what we're all about at the story. So this fits, it works, and we are splitting this long series up into five volumes that cover the five big themes that play out in Luke's gospel. Today we're starting volume three. It's called Son of God, Son of Man. And in this volume of messages, we're going to be talking about what Jesus came to do for you and why it matters to us, what he came to accomplish on our behalf, and what difference it actually makes in our lives. And today we're going to be talking about something I think is near and dear to every heart. Every one of us is going to be able to relate to this uh, message because we all know what it's like to be tempted. Now, we're all probably tempted in different ways. We have different weaknesses. But when we talk about Jesus, we talk about someone who is God in the flesh, but who was tempted in every way as we are. And so when we struggle, he knows what it's like to struggle. And today we're going to see evidence of that uh, from Luke chapter 4. So why don't we get right into the first verse of Luke chapter 4, verse 1, as we talk about um, Jesus' temptation and testing in the wilderness. So this is right on the heels of his baptism. He's just been baptized in the Jordan River, and this is what happens next. Jesus... Full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. We're gonna gonna read more in a minute, but just gonna pause right there for just a second, because we've just been introduced by Luke to a major figure in the Jesus story, right? This is the devil. And a lot of people freak out when we start talking about the devil because it's unpleasant and uncomfortable or whatever. And I think there was a time not long ago when preachers would preach about the devil just so Christians would remember that he exists. Because so many more Christians believed in God, uh, let's say 20 years ago, than believed in Satan and something in America has shifted, uh, really, to my surprise. I did not see this coming, and I am rarely surprised by any craziness that I experience in the world these days. Very little surprises me. But it looks like times have changed in regard to people believing in God, the God of the Bible, and people believing in the devil. Let me explain. So in 1991 in America, surveys showed that among American adults, 78% believed In the God of the Bible. That means the omnipotent God described in the Bible who created everything and sent Jesus and all that. So 78% believed in the God of the Bible in 1991. In 2020, that same survey group, Barna Group, surveyed a similar group of Americans and found that 51% of adults today in 2020 believed in the God of the Bible. From 78% to 51%, barely half. All right, now where Satan is concerned, it used to be that more people in America believed in God than Satan, as we see in the statistic on your screen right now. Born a group studied in 1991, a group of Americans that said 68% of Americans believed in Satan, and the way it was worded, they believe in Satan as a spiritual force who impacts, or a spiritual being who impacts people's lives every day okay so 68% believed in 1991 and in 2020 56% still believe so less but it wasn't as far of a of a you know decrease as Americans belief in god has been so in god the number fell from 78 to 51 belief in satan only fell from 68 to 56 which is interesting. And if you're keeping score at home, what this means is that we live in an America now where more people believe in Satan than in the God of the Bible, which is mind-blowing. But this is what the data are showing us. Now, in, I, in some way, I took some small—I was looking for silver lining, y'all. I found it. I think I took some small comfort in knowing that people out there still believe in Satan— And I know that's weird to hear a preacher say, but I only say that because I don't think Satan wants to be believed in. I don't think he wants to make headlines. All the stuff you know about, like, satanic worship in the world, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, that was really a bunch of, like, bunk, right? It's like Satan doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He doesn't want you like, uh, you know, some... 1980s rock star Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off a rat on stage in worship of him. That's ridiculous. He doesn't need that from us. He doesn't need to be our God necessarily, like God is our God. He just doesn't want us to have God. He wants to put nothing in our minds. It's not that he wants to fill our minds with the worst, most awful things. And this is uh, um, where I came to this conclusion was in reading C.S. Lewis's work on demons, and it was uh, in part a fictional book called uh, The Screwtape Letters that really opened my eyes to this reality, because it so resonated with my experience with how this my spiritual enemy works on me. And in this book, what you've got are two demons, or angels, let's say, in Satan's army that write letters to each other and compare notes about how best to secure a human soul for hell for all eternity. So at one point, the senior angel writes to his understudy. He says, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Why? Well, in another part of the book, Scrutave explains further. He says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So y'all, this is, this is all to mean that, that uh, our enemy doesn't need to trick us into doing something horrible, to murdering a bunch of people or doing something just awful. He just needs to keep us from doing and thinking and saying and proclaiming and living for good things. He doesn't need us to do awful things. He just needs us to not do or say or think good things. His goal isn't to make us radical in any direction, I don't think. I think it's just to keep us moderate, middle of the road, milk toast, and safe, especially in regard to our religion. And I'm going to share one more quote. I geeked out on Screwtape this week. One more quote from Screwtape that says this perfectly. He says, if you can at at once get him to the point of thinking that religion— is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us, the demons, as no religion at all, and more amusing. Sometimes we think being in the middle of the road is sort of the safe and polite place to be. As uh, C.S. Lewis would point out, the middle of the road is often where we get run over, by Satan. It's often exactly where he wants us, with no firm opinions or convictions at all, just sort of nice and polite and, by all appearances, pleasant. Now, to Luke and to the earliest Christians, it was tantamount that every believer understands we're fighting a spiritual war every day, that we're up against an enemy that wants to have us with him for eternity, just like God wants to have us with Him for eternity, our enemy wants to claim us and have us, and He's got a plan for us, and we should know this so that we can fight and resist Him and and cause Him to flee. Now, this enemy of ours is public enemy number one and always has been, according to Scripture. Elsewhere in the Bible, this enemy of ours is described or called Satan, uh, the deceiver, the liar, and father of lies. Um, described as an angel of darkness who fell from heaven. Jesus said he saw this angel of uh, God fall from heaven. Uh, He took one-third of the angels with him. The Bible is clear that this angel called Satan or Lucifer masquerades as an angel of light. And so it's possible for you to even communicate with something or someone who claims to be angelic and if you're not grounded in the word, you're going to be fooled. You could be fooled by an angel of darkness that's masquerading. And I, I, I got to tell you, it happens. It happens maybe more than you would think. And in my line of work, I'm privy to this sort of thing more often than the average person. I get that. But I just want you to know that this is real, this spiritual masquerade that our enemy puts on and uh, fools people who are unsuspecting, all right? Now, it's not just these other people in the Bible that talk a lot about the devil. I think a lot of people think that's just in the crazy parts of the Bible, Revelation or Daniel or whatever. It's like, no, the one person who talked more about Satan than any other person in the Bible was Jesus. Jesus talked about Satan with regularity. Jesus talked to Satan and his demons with some regularity. And in one of those conversations is the passage we're exploring um, today. So let's continue reading Luke chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Uh, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, Jesus was hungry, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. This is the first of three tests or temptations that the enemy uh, came at Jesus with and it should come as no surprise to us that in the moment Jesus was hungry the enemy came to him with a test of his appetite this is just enemy 101 this is what satan does the most when you have a weakness he knows it and he's going to test it especially a weakness in your flesh like hunger so first and foremost the enemy will test your appetites it's the simplest way for him to get you because when he when he gets you In the flesh, it's like your heart and soul and mind come along with it for free. Jesus said, "Where your where your treasure is, there your heart will go." Also, I think there's a a message for us there to guard our flesh, guard what we treasure. Be careful with how uh, our fleshly weakness makes us susceptible to the attacks of the enemy, right? So when he perceives an opening, he will relentlessly pursue that specific opening. If you have a weakness for food or you're hungry, he'll put food in your path. If you have a problem with Drinking, he'll, he'll put drink in front of you whenever is most opportune. If you have a weakness where it comes to sexual temptation, he's going to tempt you in that regard. And, Lord, he can do that in a thousand different ways now. Thank you, Internet, and, you know, all the pornography that's readily available at the click of a mouse or what have you on our, on our smartphones. He's going to test you where you're weak, in your flesh in all kinds of bodily comforts. If the enemy can enslave your flesh, he gets the rest of you for free. So what is our hope here? What's the solution? Well, the the Bible says that the way to combat this attack of the enemy is to be self-controlled, to have self-control, to be self-restrained, to be disciplined, one way that we discipline ourselves in the flesh is by fasting for certain periods of time, fasting from food, fasting from drink, fasting from sex, fasting from other you know, comforts and things like that that get us out of that uh, lazy flesh mentality. And the, the, the way that the New Testament puts it is in doing that, we, we don't give the devil a foothold. So Paul in, in Ephesians 4 says to watch out for sins of the flesh. In, in this case, he's talking about anger and angry outbursts. He said, if you can resist the sin of the flesh, you will not give the devil a foothold in your heart, in your life. And so, being disciplined in the flesh is a critical part of our fight against this enemy. A few years ago, there was um, a study, or not really a study, it was a, the result of a study, but the videos that came out were called the Marshmallow Experiments. And I've talked about this test. A number of times. I found it amusing. But something else struck me about these tests this week. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. But in case you missed it, these marshmallow tests went viral where four-year-old children were tested by their parents or their teachers. They were left alone in a room with one marshmallow in front of them and told that if they can resist eating that one marshmallow until their parent or teacher comes back, when the parent or teacher comes back, they'll get two marshmallows. And like half the kids, literally in every test, half the kids uh, waited and got the two marshmallows. The other half of the kids just couldn't wait and started eating the marshmallow before the adult came back. Well, the, the takeaway from this test was kind of brutal, honestly, because what, what, the, what the experimenters, the scientists, the researchers were trying to prove, and they would say they did prove, that um, self-control at age four is an indicator brutally honest indicator of how that child will grow up as an adult. So if that child could resist eating that one marshmallow in his or her childhood at age four, it's very likely that child's going to do better in school, going to do better when it comes to resisting addictions and unhealthy attachments and do better in relationships and just do better at life. And of course, the other side of that coin is when you're watching this sweet, impulsive four-year-old take the one marshmallow and be helpless in its presence and eat it, without waiting what you're basically seeing is a is a loser in the making you're, you're seeing a four-year-old that's inevitably going to grow up and become an overeater and or an underachiever and there's really no hope for this kid he is who he is it's locked in it's encoded in his DNA it's 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 it's, it's his algorithm and he is who he is and and in in response to that kind of a thing I want to say two things first as someone who definitely would have eaten the, the one marshmallow as a child, I have no doubt, I'm not being facetious, you know, I, I, think, I think a lot of us who are babies in the family, I'm the youngest, like we're more prone to like self-indulgence. Uh, I would have totally taken the bait and eaten the one marshmallow. As that guy, I can tell you I have absolutely seen how the test is true Someone who takes the marshmallow at four is more likely to be self-indulgent later in life. I was. I've talked a lot about my unhealthy attachments and addictions before I came to Christ and faith in Jesus. And and still, it's a battle. You know, I still have to get up and fight every day. I know how I'm wired. I have self-awareness because I've seen how a lack of self-discipline in the little things inevitably leads to a lack of self-discipline in big things, which inevitably leads to destruction. It's ugly, If you can't be self-controlled in the small things of life, it it, it will take you over and there will be consequences. But there's another thing I want to say to the kid that eats the marshmallow, (laughs) to everyone who falls prey to self-indulgence. There's hope. You're not a slave to your genetic coding. You're not a slave to your past or to your tendencies or propensities. You are not what you've done In the past, you certainly are not identified in God's eyes by your weaknesses, all right? There's hope because in Christ we're made new. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. So there's hope for the four-year-old marshmallow eaters in the world in Christ. There's hope for the 24-year-old you know, porn addict, or for the 34-year-old Adderall junkie, or the 44-year-old you know, uh, alcoholic or overeater, the 54-year-old, 64-year-old, seven, there's hope for us all in Christ. We don't have to be slaves to those addictions and indulgences. Your, your character flaws are not inescapable. You are free, even if the enemy has convinced you that you're not. And I think that freedom is really what's at the heart of this temptation and all three of the tests that the enemy puts in front of Jesus because by testing Jesus with bread when he's hungry, he's not only testing his hunger, he's testing Jesus' commitment to freedom, his own freedom of will to choose to trust God and wait for God to provide. And in a way uh, that I'll talk about at the very end of this message, he's testing Jesus' commitment to our free will as well, because we're all free to say yes or no to Jesus as he is, but would we be as free to say yes or no to him if he were some kind of all-powerful magician that conjured up bread every time we were hungry and gave it to us for free? Like, that kind of coercion erodes freedom. And so what's going on in this test is more than just a momentary uh, hunger issue. It's about freedom, free will. So first, the enemy will always come after your appetites of the flesh. And then, if you're able to withstand those, he refuses to stop there and he moves on. Let's see where he goes. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me... There's the key. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's the second time Jesus has quoted Scripture in response to Satan's tests. So there's a clue about how to fight temptations. After testing your appetites, the enemy will always go after your allegiances. Your allegiances, your loyalty. Who are you true to? Who do you trust? T.S. Eliot, the great poet, once wrote about this very test of the enemy with Jesus in the wilderness. This test, he said, this temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So the point here is that what Satan in this moment was offering Jesus was already going to be Jesus's in the end. Satan wasn't coming up with some new deliverable. He was borrowing God the Father's deliverable, which it was always God's plan to give Jesus authority and power over every kingdom of the earth and make his name known throughout the earth and every land. That was always God's plan, but Satan took that plan and offered it faster. He offered it more quickly, more conveniently, if you will. Who doesn't like a little bit of, convenience and quickness. Who doesn't like getting through the waiting more quickly? I mean, wouldn't this be the best case scenario? If it's Jesus we're talking about, and wouldn't Jesus on the throne over all the kingdoms of the earth as quickly as possible be best for everyone? However he gets there, The point is that he gets there. Sure, bend the knee to Satan once, but then you change the system from within, right? That's that's always the excuse that we use for going into the the world the way the world does and trying to change the system from within. But what happens to us when we take that shortcut, when we cut that corner, when we bend the knee to something or someone who's not worthy of that worship, of that uh, surrender and submission of ours? So it's not as simple as, well, Jesus could have just taken what God, was, God the Father was going to give him to begin with and taken it more quickly and done what he was going to do anyway. No, it's about allegiance. It's about who you really trust. And there's nothing that will reveal to you who your true allegiances are like an extended period of waiting. And I think that's one of the reasons God makes us wait. Like God makes all these promises to us. God has made promises to you. He has promised to look after you forever, to take care of you, to give you an inheritance that's richer than you can possibly conceive of. He's promised you all these things, that you're his son, you're his daughter, no matter what, you're forgiven and you're free. He has promised you that all these things can be yours. But there's going to be some waiting. There's going to be a journey to that destination. And there are no shortcuts to glory as much as maybe we would like there to be. But I want you to think about Jesus in this moment, how easy it would have been for him to say yes to this offer. Yeah, I'll just take everything the Father wants for me anyway. I'll just take it in a different way, an easier way. There were two roads in front of Jesus in this moment. There were two roads. One was long, and it involved a cross. The other was short and simple and no cross. Which one would you be tempted to take? I know which one. I would, but Jesus knows there is no crown without the cross. And sometimes we want, we want the crown but no cross. We want the glory without the, the gore. We want the bread without the baking, right? We, we, want, we want immediate gratification without having to wait. Meanwhile, the the devil sees that and whispers in our ears, you know, why bear a cross with Christ when it's costly? And I can give you your crown for free. Like all these temptations every day, cut that corner, take that shortcut. Trust me, just worship me. We don't think of ourselves as Satan worshipers, but take a shortcut and you might be surprised where it leads. So how do we combat the enemy's attack on our allegiances? Well, clearly it's by worshiping and submitting to God Alone, right? Jesus' own brother, James, wrote, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. In other words, by submitting yourself to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is power over these temptations, power over the tempter that you can claim, but it's only power that you claim whenever you surrender yourself to God. And I hope we're taking notes again about how important it is as someone surrendering to God for you to be in the Word daily, to know how to come back at the enemy whenever he tempts you, whether it's in the flesh or in your spirit, whether it's with, you know, these appetites or the allegiances uh, that we've talked about so far. There's one more temptation that the the devil throws in front of Jesus. Um, This is in the final part of the passage, uh, verse 9 to 13. It says, the devil then led Jesus to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, that's a a quote from the Bible, from the Old Testament. When the devil had finished all this tempting... He left him until an opportune time. So after testing our appetites and testing our allegiances, the devil will then come after our assumptions, our assumptions. What I mean with this uh, is that he will then attack our most deeply held beliefs, now, these aren't necessarily religious beliefs, these are just the core convictions on which we stand and by which we walk in the world every day, just the things we assume to be true, our, our most foundational um, beliefs and, and that we hang our hats on, our understanding of truth. Now, it, it takes a lot of nerve, I think, to quote Scripture to Jesus, <laughs> But that's exactly what Satan does here in this third temptation. He didn't in the first two. Only Jesus quotes from the Bible in the first two. But in the third one, Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He quotes it to Jesus. And this, I think, should be a warning to us all to not be deceived when scriptures are twisted. But here's the the risk that we run when we're middle-of-the-road kind of people who never want to offend and just want to live a nice life. We won't be dwelling in the word daily or even just enough in the word to be able to discern a truth from the lie, the true scripture from a twisted one. And so uh, when, when the devil comes to Jesus and quotes Psalm 91, it's only because Jesus knows the word of God like the back of his hand that he knows the devil is twisting it. So so what I mean is, uh, in Psalm 91, we have a psalm that's clearly about someone who has either accidentally fallen or is falling against their will, and God in his grace protects them and catches them and picks them up and all that stuff. Like This is not a psalm about someone who tests God by jumping off a building. But Satan takes the psalm, takes the good idea of the psalm, and, and twists it just a little bit to make it sound like you know Jesus should jump off this building and and prove to the whole world that God is going to take special care of him now with Jesus obviously he's defended against this uh, attack of the enemy but uh, I got to think it, it's a lot easier for the the devil to <laughs> Trick those of us who don't know the Bible as well as Jesus, which is probably all of us. But the the less versed you are in Scripture, the more susceptible you are to this kind of attack. And y'all, this happens all the time. Like well-meaning, self-identifying Christians will get so twisted up about something happening in the world or in the church because they don't know the Bible well enough to make sense of what they feel in their flesh or what the enemy is whispering in their ear. Like the enemy can take something as fundamental as God is love. For example, a very fundamental teaching in scripture: God is love. And with someone who's not versed enough in scripture to know exactly what the love of God means and how sometimes it means or sometimes it means hurting or sometimes it means tough love. Sometimes it means wrath. Like, like if you don't know all of that in Scripture and all you hear is God is love, then you can be tricked by the devil into thinking that if God is love, it must be okay for me to do what I'm doing and live how I'm living and think how I'm thinking and, and, and God's going to be okay with it. He has to be. He's love. And Christians need to stop judging me. Churches need to stop coming down on me and telling me how to live my life, because God is love, and so He loves me the same, no matter what I'm doing in my flesh or what I'm doing with my life. That's not a biblical message necessarily, but it's so easy to get twisted and confused, and if you're not doing your homework, you know another another way to think about this is God is love, so uh, how could He send someone to hell? God is love, so there is no hell. Like the, These kinds of deceptions are so easy to creep into our, to our mindset if we're not reading and studying and versed in the Word of God ourselves. Of course, Jesus was, and that's what allowed him to respond the way that he did. It is said, do not tempt or test the Lord your God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Jesus knew exactly what Satan was up to because of his intimate awareness of Scripture That's how we resist this particular temptation. Peter put it this way. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Have a sober mind, have awareness that what you're hearing doesn't always compute to how it feels or how it sounds. He says, the enemy's prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Sometimes the nicest and sweetest ideas or thoughts or new teachings or new insights that, that take tried and true historic, Christian doctrines and teachings and twist them just a little bit, sometimes it's too nice to be true. And if it sounds too nice to be true, it probably is. Okay, so that's what being alert and of sober mind means. We have to test everything we hear people saying, whether they're politicians or preachers or anyone trying to influence us, against what the Word of God actually says. So when we talk about this enemy of ours and how he works on us, it's important to know he, he comes at us with a multi-pronged attack. This is a multi-front war <laughs> that we're in. We have to guard not only our appetites, but also our our allegiances and our assumptions, right? Um, because, because he's going to try to find our uh, susceptibilities and our weaknesses. And to fend off his attacks, we have to be patient. We have to be self-controlled. We have to have a sober mind. But as we've seen today, what we all need is more time in the word to keep us grounded and firm in our beliefs. Now, the reason is because Christianity is hard. Life with Jesus is going to present you with seasons of struggle and testing Jesus himself walked through the fire of the test to show us that it's normal. It should be expected. It's part of the journey. Like the, the, the glory that awaits us can only be attained through the testing in the wilderness, through the carrying of the cross, through dying to ourselves. Then we'll be raised in glory. And so when you go through seasons that feel dry, that leave you feeling empty or hungry, that leave you feeling unfulfilled, that leave you feeling tested. No, you're on the right path. You're on the Jesus path. And all there is to do is trust him all the more. Trust in his promises. Wait on the Lord. Dwell in the word. And let him take you through every season of testing, every trial. Because without that, testing and training, what we'll end up with is a faith that's so fickle that when we struggle, we'll walk away, which I believe is what happens all the time when Christians walk away or sometimes when Christians say they need to deconstruct or they need to um, find a new path. I've seen it a lot, a lot of times, not all the time, y'all, but a lot of times it's because they were raised to believe or brought up to believe that following Jesus is easy, and then they found out that it's not. G.K. Chesterton, the great British theologian, put it this way. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I think this is important for all of us to remember. The difficulty is part of it. It's not the exception. It's the rule. But it's a road that leads to the glory of God. So when your walk with Christ feels like a test, feels like a, cra- like, like a cross, just know that your crown is still waiting for you. Hold on, hang in there, wait on God, and dwell in the word. Now, the risk for us all is if we, if we don't do that, if we get impatient, if we start to, to react, you know, out of our feelings instead of trusting in the Lord, if we start taking the devil's deals of convenience and shortcuts, what we might end up with is a desire for a savior who sounds and looks a lot like the kind of savior that Satan was tempting Jesus with. Like G- Satan's offer to Satan, Satan's offer to Jesus was, I will make you a savior my way. I will make you a savior who produces results on demand. I will make you a savior who can't be resisted who can't be told no, because who would say no to a Savior who gives them the bread that they need for free every day? Who would say no to a Savior who puts on a light show in the sky or who proves this miraculous power of God every day? Who could say no to that? That was Satan's offer. On the surface level, it doesn't seem that bad. But such a Savior does, has no patience for the process required for love. Such a Savior would have no room for freedom. Such a Savior would have no willingness to let us choose to love him, yes or no. But if we're not careful, y'all, it can be so easy to become enamored with with an authoritarian, totalitarian being over us that makes us feel comfortable That makes us feel good, that makes us feel safe. This is the only explanation I can think of for humanity's repeated return to being enamored with big governments and like the the totalitarian kind of governmental structures that give people what they want on demand. Just feed me, Mr. Government, (laughs) you know, feed me, keep me safe, protect me here. You can control me if you want to. Here's my freedom, but by all means, make me comfortable. And every time, every few generations, we fall into that sort of totalitarian government uh, being enamored with that. And every time it ends up with more corruption, more violence, more depravity. And it's like we act surprised every time. I've heard people say that religion has killed more people than any other force in the world. I beg to differ. Big, oversized governments have killed tens, dozens, hundreds of times more people than any other institution the world has ever seen, and yet we continue to flock back to it. Take care of us, protect us, feed us. Here's our freedom in exchange, and it never ends well. That's not the kind of relationship God has created us for. That's not the kind of lordship he wants over us. That's why he refuses to dazzle us into submission. That's why he refuses to uh, cut our waiting short and perform on demand so that he can have our wow and our awe and even our fear. It's not what he wants. He wants our love. And love takes time. Love takes trust. Most of all, love takes freedom. And that, I believe, is why Jesus said no to the shortcuts Satan offered him for the sake of freedom, your freedom, and mine. And it's the same reason why I hope you will choose to say no to the shortcuts that your enemy will put in front of you inevitably, the shortcuts that put a premature end to your struggle or an end to your trial, the shortcuts that are the easy way out. It's rarely the road to glory. Choose instead the harder, longer path. Choose the cross as you wait for your crown, and you will see glory. That's the promise of God. We will all see his glory in its fullness, and we will be his daughters and his sons forever in his kingdom if we choose to wait on him, dwell in him, and worship him and him alone. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, this reminder today from your servant Luke. Luke as he tells us the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. Thank you, Jesus, for not being a high priest who stands at a distance and is incapable of, uh, of empathizing with his subjects. Lord, instead, you walked where we walk. You've been where we are. And you empathize with every struggle and trial in every way. And for that reason, we can trust you and rely on you. When all else fails, when everyone else disappoints, when there's nowhere else to turn, you're always steadfast. We give you thanks. And we choose today to trust you over and above everyone else, even ourselves. And we give you all of our love, all of our allegiance, Lord, and all of our worship. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.